Hello, hello. Um, I'm Jeremy Hampton. My wife and I um, and our daughters are part of the Warren MC, and we're covenant members here at SOMA. Um, I'm going to read the scripture for today. Uh, it is uh, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. Can't, is that? Yes. Uh, and that's on page 1018. Uh, you can find it there in the Black Bibles. Uh, starting in verse 3, uh, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good morning. My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma. And we are continuing in a series about that what we're entitling Practicing the Way of Jesus for the Life of the World. And it's a series about us forming ourselves intentionally into the image of Christ. And let's pray and ask for God's work to help us understand what he has for us today. Father God, Lord, I pray for you to give us a vision today of what it looks like to become like you. Lord, if we're honest, that's a scary phrase to put over our lives. Because, Lord, your life is one that is otherworldly, Lord. It's one that is, seems so far out of reach. And the fact is, it's true. We are fallen. We're not what we were meant to be. But you have freed us from a life of sin and death. And you have empowered us with your spirit. And in doing so, you call us to live out the way of following after you and becoming more like you. Lord, let us see that as a joyful vision. Let us not see that as a burden. Or if we do see it, Lord, just it is a burden of something that we were made to become, something we were meant to put on. Lord, this is... I think, again, an uh, up there, out there, hard concept to hold on to. So, Lord, I pray that you would make it clear. I pray that your spirit be here right now, clarifying my words, taking away uh, from my words to reveal your words, Lord, that have stood the test of time and are calling people throughout generations to become like you, to shape their inner character into someone who can naturally do the things that you did. And, Lord, I pray that for this people. I pray that for our body. 
I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, this series that we are in, Practicing the Way of Jesus for the Life of the World, it's, it's all about us coming and realizing that life is something that we want to continually move ourselves in, being called to be disciples of Jesus. So we are called to be not just Christians in this world, but disciples. And we talked about how Christian only appears three times in the Bible, and it's usually just a nickname for somebody who is called to be a disciple, that is, a learner, someone who is learning the ways of Christ, someone who is putting on Christ, is becoming more like Christ, that is practicing the way of what it is to become a Christian. And we talked about that there's three main goals we want to put before us as a community that we want to regularly be doing in the course of this series. We want to be people, disciples that are with our teacher Jesus. We are ones who are abiding in him. We talked about that last week. And then uh, this week we want to talk about we are people that become like Jesus. We train, change our inner being, as I just prayed, to someone who can naturally do the things that Jesus did. And that's the last thing is that we want to be those who do what Jesus did. So become or be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And so this week, if we're talking about becoming like Jesus, we have to realize or we have to just state that in itself means that our lives have to change. I don't know about you, but for me, it's a big change. I'm not someone who just needs a few tweaks, a little bit of self-help to an otherwise Jesus-y existence. Like, I need major shifts in who I am. In fact, the Bible is going to call this transformation, that we are called not just to come and believe certain things about God, but we are called through in those beliefs, in daily practice, to be transformed into the image of our Savior. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says it like this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And if you are sitting here thinking like, well, you know, like, I, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I need to change a few things, but ultimately I'm not that bad. I just want to read some of the calls of the New Testament. Here are the, some of the things that New Testament calls us to do as people. Ephesians 4 it says this, And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away all, all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, uh, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that they, he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up and fits the occasion that it may give grace to all those who hear. It do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for, by whom you are sealed for on the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. And then, of course, in Galatians 5, it talks about walking with the Spirit and not gratifying the di desires of the flesh. And he lists those out, and he says, hey, those are sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things of these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here's what I want to ask us this morning. 
Is this possible? We read these words in the New Testament of what God has called us to be. We put before you a goal. Become like Jesus. Is this actually possible in your life, in my life? Or let me ask you this question. Is this even important and necessary? We are, by self-proclamation, a gospel-centered church. And so that means that all the time we're talking, week in and week out, we're talking about the gospel of Jesus. And the gospel of Jesus is him coming and saying, hey, I proclaim good news that all who come to me will be saved. That he says, hey, you are jacked up in your natural likeness of your spirit. Just who you are is naturally not who you were meant to be. We are broken and sinful creatures. But it's not the sense of, hey, you come and you work your way and you make yourself better. But no, Romans 5, 8 says that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And that while we were still running far from him, he grabs us through the cross and he says, hey, anyone who comes and simply confesses their sin and holds onto my death, burial, and resurrection will be seen as perfect in the eyes of of God. They will be seen in Christ. And we declare that truth. We hold on to those truths. We love those truths. And we talk about how like there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation and there's nothing we can do to add to it. That anything you do today, the next day, all your past, present, future sins and all your past, present, future activities do not add to your salvation. And so the problem is, is then I get into some of these commands in the New Testament and I just start thinking like, well, then it's not really a big deal. I get to it if I have time. I become someone who's filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control if I can. But the truth is, if I don't, well, then it doesn't really matter anyway. It's all covered up by the cross. I've talked to a lot of us, and I've talked to some of you, and I've even heard things like, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, like Jesus was the perfect form of humanity, and he lived a life I could not live, and he died the death I deserved to die, but now I no longer have to. And, and the truth is, is I just will never become like him. And so I'm just kind of holding on to that fact. And, and that's true. These are true things. And this is why this is a really hard sermon to preach, and this is going to be really hard, and I'm praying for the Spirit to really be in us and be working out this. Those are true things in some way, in a way that that is a true reality. But there is a way in which you can say that. There's a way you can shape your life in which that's really dangerous. Because, again, it, it takes these thoughts of the New Testament. It takes these ways of, of putting to death sin, putting off the old self, and putting on the new self, putting on aliveness to Christ, and it says maybe they have no part in the Christian life. But that's not how we've looked at the Christian life historically. Historically, we've talked about this idea of what has been the theological term of sanctification, becoming progressively more shaped into the image of Jesus. And there's two parts to that. There's historically been called the mortification of sin. I kill parts of me that need to die. There's parts of me that as I come close to God and see who he is and see how he's designed humanity, I see that I am not this way. And so we do things like we confess. We confess corporately. We confess privately. And we repent. We move away from things that are killing us. And then there's also vivification. 
And vivification is simply bringing to life things that God has designed me to move into, things that he has moved, or that, things that he has designed humanity to be. And I say, I want those things. I want affections and worship, and I want love, and I want joy, and I want peace, and I want hold on to these things, and I want to find the way to kill what is deathly in me and bring alive what is good in me. And, and here's the thing that, here's why it's so dangerous. And, and for this, I want to jump into the text. Verse 3 of Second Peter, chapter 1, where it says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us to his, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And then just really quickly, jump down to verse 9. He says, for whoever lacks these qualities, the qualities that is just listed out there, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, forever uh, lacks these qualities, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I feel like I've been harping on this week in and week out, but I feel like it's just something that our community, our church, we really need to sit in this, in this season. You have been freed from sin. And sin leads to death. There's parts of us that are just like, yeah, I've been freed from sin. And the fact is, is we, thought, we think about, I've been freed from the guilt of sin, which is true. The cross frees us from the guilt of sin. We are now no longer guilty because we are seen perfect in Jesus. He took on my sin. He gave me his righteousness. But you're not just freed from the guilt of sin. You're freed from the power of sin. And so we say the things all the time. Well, it's like, well, like, if I'm freed from the guilt of sin, then what just keeps me from just doing whatever I want? Because that's crazy talk if you think about what sin is. That it's literally deforming your humanity. I mean, just think about some of the common, I mean, I just try to pick out, like, common sins that we participate in re- regularly and in this room that I just know are present. Um, gossip. Just talking about other people. And the funny thing is, gossip, we do it, we kind of like studied it. Like, why do people gossip about other people? Why do we just like talk about other people? With a, We just get together and we talk about this person. I mean, it's pretty much what social media is. It's just so I can gossip publicly to the world. And we get together and we talk about people and it's because we want to feel close to other people and because we want to increase our security, our self-identity. But here's what's ironic about that. They've done studies and that people who participate in gossip regularly report lower self-esteem and a separation from others. It destroys the very thing you're seeking to get from it. Or lust and pornography. That we are so shaped by an over-sexualized culture that we think, man, this is the only way I can just regulate or control certain levels of joy, and I want this, and I want this now. But the problem is it comes just dosed with guilt and shame. Or sex outside of marriage that we are so, again, captivated by this idea that sex is the highest calling in life and to not have it is to not experience life and life to the full, but we get lost in this idea that, I mean, 
again, studies will show that those who are, are living together before uh, outside of marriage or sex outside of marriage, they have a more likelihood for the relationship to end. There is something about the way that God designed the world when he says, hey, no, I want you to be fully committed to each other. And then when you're fully committed financially, emotionally, and always, then when you connect in a sexual way, it explodes into something more powerful than you've ever experienced before. And yes, you can have some of the pleasure but it's just not the same thing. That all the just shooting off of biological and exchanging of pleasures and excitement and all that, it's just not how I've designed the world to be. And ultimately, it robs life. It robs joy from you. Or bitterness. Man, there's so much science on bitterness about how those who uh, hold on to bitterness and can't forgive experience uh, higher levels of anxiety, depression, uh, higher, higher blood pressure, higher mental health issues, um, lower self-esteem, a uh, worse immune system, or covetousness. I mean, there's just something that we've formed in ourselves, again, primarily through social media. And again, uh, you can read article after article about social media depression, about how we are becoming more depressed people because we look around at people's lives and they just seem like they're put together and they seem like they're all, you know, because again, they just they snapped. I mean, you look at pictures in your phone and you can take all the pictures you want right now and you delete the ones where your kids are just gouging each other's eyes out and you keep the ones where they all just happen to smile on accident at the camera. And you can put those forward and you can go through social media and you can look like, oh, there's the perfect loving family. You can think about how, like, if you have a family, it doesn't look like that. Or you don't have a family. Or you desperately want that. Or you can look at all the travel and all the food that people are making. And you can say, like, all these joyous experiences and it just breeds this sense of, I want this, I want this, I want this. And it is destroying us. Because Sin destroys you. And so God says, hey, when I come in and I take on the cross, yes, I'm taking away the guilt of sin. He says that he takes the record of sin, he nails it to the cross, that he takes all of your guilt and he destroys it. But here's what he also says. He says, I also free you from the power of sin and death. I actually, through my Holy Spirit, through my grace, allow you to walk out of the chains that you find yourself in. Because these things are just chains, right? I mean, you can try to stop them, but outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, you just can't. Uh, But we can't take that and be like, okay, awesome. I'm freed from sin, so that means I can live in it more? And that's just like, I mean, it's, like Will Ferrell and Zoolander, like you feel like you're taking crazy pills. Like it's like, okay, I've been freed from slavery so I can still wear shackles and chains. Oh, I've gotten free from a powerful addiction with heroin so that means I can shoot back up again. No, it's killing us. We've been freed from it. And so that's one of the dangerous things we're doing. And, And the second dangerous thing we're doing is that if we're someone who wants to be in the kingdom of God, wants eternal life, wants to be near to Jesus, but have no intention of becoming like him, the New Testament just doesn't have a category for us. 
again, you read the New Testament, it's just filled with this thought of, hey, for those of you who have entered into his kingdom, for those of you who have entered into his family, now take on a new identity. You have been saved in the blood of Christ, and you have been made a child of God. And we take that and we amen, and we should amen, because that's powerful imagery. The fact that we have been made children of God, our King. We have all the privileges of what it is to be a child of God. And along with this new identity comes a new activity. You are now freed from sin, and you are now free to walk into humanity as the way you are meant to live. And that is harder for us. That we struggle with. And we say things all the time like, well, nobody's perfect. Yeah, nobody is perfect. But what if we, rather than nobody's perfect, hey, I'm trusting that God and the power of his Holy Spirit can do the things in me that he said he can do. That he can work out the faith and the salvation and the life in me that he said he could work out. Because the truth is we have all these things throughout the scriptures that just say, man, if you're someone in the kingdom but you're not choosing to be formed in the image of Jesus or you don't desire to be formed into the image of Jesus, there's just, I mean, there is a category for you, but it's, it's not a pretty one, actually. You see this in, um, Jesus talks about a parable in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 22. You don't have to turn there. Actually, yeah, let's turn there. Matthew 22. Come on, let's read this. Let's be shaped by the words of God today, by reading them. Matthew 22, I'm getting closer, and I'll give you the page number. Or somebody's got to give me the page number. 827, you guys are better at Bible drills than I. All right, Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in a parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven uh, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and uh, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent another servant saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out onto the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Interesting thing that they just go and gather both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now here's what I really want to zoom in on. But when the king came to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And that man was speechless, or he was speechless, the man who didn't have the wedding garment. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Here's what I want to bring out in that moment. That there are those who are called into the kingdom of God. And again, we celebrate each time that, hey, we are called in the kingdom of God and we are resting our salvation on Christ and Christ alone. That is true, but that is naturally built in with this idea that, hey, we are then going to be freed into becoming more like Christ. And for those who don't are like somebody who wants to come in the kingdom, and he's just saying like, hey, you're in here, but, but you just haven't put on the wedding garment. You haven't become like me. And so he says, hey, 
there's, there's no place for you here. These are really hard truths to hold on to. And these are truths that if I'm honest, sometimes I have had vacant in my preaching and my own life. And sometimes the scripture just comes and brings us back to these things. Or it's going to say all throughout the scriptures. Hey, you're saved by faith alone, and that's through grace alone. And there's nothing you do, past, present, or future, that earns that. But simultaneously, Jesus says, hey, my teaching, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And we think rest means awesome, okay? Like, I just come to him and just don't do anything. And he says, but no, after that, he says, hey, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, there is a yoke when you come to me. There is a burden. But it's simply a light one, or maybe a better way to translate it for you. It's the right burden that was meant to be put on you. It is you becoming human in the way that you were meant to fully be human. Because we get really confused about freedom. We think freedom is having no restrictions whatsoever. If I'm free, it means I can do what I want and nobody can tell me otherwise. But the problem with that is that's just not how freedom works out in our world. Like, think about freedom for a fish. And this is a popular analogy, but it's a helpful one. If a fish wants to be free, they have to find the right constrictions to live their life, which means they have to live in water. A fish doesn't say, well, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. So I can choose to live outside of water, absolutely, for about, I don't know, six minutes. Or similarly, if you're oxygen-breathing you have to choose to live in a place where oxygen exists. And if you are someone who's been shaped or has been called into his kingdom, then the natural call, what is natural freedom for you, is to put on the right restrictions and to become someone who is shaped in the image of Jesus. Or another way to put it is, you know, that analogy I've heard about freedom is, uh, if you think about uh, piano, you can say like, okay, I want to be free um, and I want to be free to play the piano. And so there's something you have to do if you want to be free to play the piano. You have to practice and work at it every day. When I was younger, I had piano lessons. I didn't practice. Um, and, you know, my mom would set like a 30-minute timer, and just you have to practice for these 30 minutes. And it was an egg timer, or not an egg timer. It was one of those timers that had a knob, and I found you could just like push it, and you could kind of slowly, t 30 minutes passed in the course of 15 minutes. My mom was busy enough. She didn't notice. And so uh, I was able to kind of like get out of practicing. Um, and then years later, I was not able to play concert piano like other people who had practiced. And so somebody who is sitting there and, and submitting themselves to practice day in, day out is saying, hey, I'm going to confine myself to actually practicing. I'm going to confine myself that I can't just go out and do whatever I want to after school, but for 30 minutes I'm here, I'm shaping myself as somebody who wants to play the piano. Then, years later, they have the freedom to express themselves through music. They have the freedom to write a song. They have the freedom to enjoy the gift of playing the piano. In order to be free, there's sometimes we have to give up certain freedoms. I can do whatever I want and I don't have to practice. Or I give it up to say, no, I will practice. I can't do what I want. I will form myself to this and I will become formed to someone who can play the piano. So in all this, I want to ask you and ask us. Let me before I ask that, let me say this. You are not necessarily called to be a good disciple. 
I mean, when I took, I, I studied, I studied a semester abroad in Spain, and I was like way like further down, I was like way further away from being able to speak Spanish than other people were, because other people were Spanish majors. I was a theater major, and I was just like, I just want to go to Spain for a semester. And I like had just enough high school Spanish, they're like, you'll probably not die. So they sent me. And... But I had to take, and me and two other students, everybody else, like, for the first three weeks had these language intensives, and everybody took, like, the normal classes, because three of us, they were put in, like, remedial Spanish, and just three of us sat there, and we were terrible at Spanish. I mean, I remember the first day, one of my, one of my fellow students just kept saying, no entiendo, no entiendo, which means I don't understand, and that was actually the first time I learned the phrase, no entiendo, because I didn't even know that. I thought, I knew there was no say, like, I don't know, but I didn't know there was, I don't understand, and so I, like, learned that phrase, and that was the phrase I used, like, crazy for the next few weeks, and it wasn't like I I was like far along. I mean, the wedding feast parable, he says, hey, I'm calling in both bad and good. And that Jesus, when he looks at his first disciples, they're not great. I mean, he's regularly like berating them for like being ye of little faith. I mean, their nickname is like ye of little faith. Ye of little faith, get over here. And ye of little faith, quit arguing about the fact that you're the greatest because the first will be last and the last will be first because that's constantly what they did. Or you look at the the life of Peter, and Peter is regularly being told by Jesus, hey, get behind me, Satan. And, and he's regularly, like, you know, shows himself to be a complete racist against Gentiles and all these things throughout the life of Peter. But, and he's also the one that denies Jesus three times. He's a horrible disciple. They're all bad disciples. So the call is not to be, hey, you have to be a perfect and great disciple. The question is, is are you on the road? Are you becoming like Jesus. And there's a difference, a subtle but real difference between I'm a bad disciple, I'm, I'm a bad, like, working on it, trying to get there, and I'm just not doing anything at all. And we can say, use the same words, well, I'm really struggling. Well, you're not really struggling that hard. And so I don't know what that is for you. I can't call that out for you. This is something that, that the Spirit of God, I'm praying right now, would work out in the hearts of each of us right now. And simply just ask, are there ways he's calling you right now to step into being formed into his image that you're simply just not doing? Looking over time in your life, three years back, five years back, however long you've been a Christian. I'm going on 11 years now. I'm just looking back, continuing my life, and looking to see, hey, has God continued, is the Spirit of God continuing to produce fruit in me? Not because it, conf- uh, not because it earns my salvation, but because he's given me life, he's given me freedom, and I simply am wanting to step more into someone who is formed into the humanity I was meant to be. Real thin lines I know we're dealing with today. And I'm, again, I'm praying that the Spirit's going to work this out because <sighs> Lord knows I need his help. So let me then ask you this question. Um, how is this possible? Because we already talked about, okay, is it important? And I would say absolutely. It's necessary to become like Jesus in our lives. It's the call of what it is to be a disciple. It's the call of Jesus. But how do we actually do it? And uh, my desire here is not to guilt you. Hey, you're not enough like Jesus, so go and try harder. But rather, um, 
I want you, rather than just going out and doing a bunch of stuff, I want us to become a church where we just, in our inner lives, become people who can naturally do what Jesus did. Dallas Willard uh, wrote a lot on spiritual formation, and he defines spiritual formation as this. Spiritual formation for the Christian refers to the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self so that it becomes like the inner being of Christ himself. That there's something that we form our inner selves, that that becomes like the character of Jesus, so that doing the things of Jesus just simply become a natural byproduct. I don't go out and try to do the things of Jesus, therefore that produces the character of Jesus in me, though that does also have an effect too. But rather, try to become that in my actions, in my thoughts, in all the ways that I'm forming myself, form myself into someone who in my inner being is like Jesus, and that naturally produces the fruit of the life of Jesus. And so, how do you do that? And the first is, is you just need to realize that we have to intentionally form ourselves. Here's, here's the reality. Every one of us is being unintentionally formed every single day. From the day you woke up this morning to when you go to bed tonight, you have been formed slightly in some direction, and it's by a number of influences. In fact, I just want to kind of name some of these influences, and I, bu- I borrowed these from Bridgetown Church that thought this was helpful, and they named these influences, and here they are. You are primarily uh, influenced by, first, number one, the stories you believe. We are story-craving creatures, we have been called. That's why we love books, we love movies, we love uh, just, you know, story. You know, my, my sons can just sit, and we can read book after book after book, and you just think like, okay, well, maybe that's just our Western modern world that just has Netflix at, at endless stream. No, that's why in ancient cultures, in all cultures, they've had legends, they've had myths, they've had ways of telling story, and here's why. The stories we tell define the realities that we believe this life exists in. And so just you look at the stories that you love or the stories that resonate with you, it's because they resonate with the ideas that you believe about this world, the stories that you believe that this world just functions in. That's why when my wife and I, we regularly had this practice um, when we would go to a movie, like on date night, we'd go home and we'd start talking about, hey, what's the story that that movie is putting forward? What is true about that story? And what is a lie? And we just start trying to parse out, like, what is this trying to that's true about the world in which we live, and, and what is a lie. And I think a good example of this is sexuality. We talk about that. If you believe the story that we are just a random accident in this world, that we are just developed and we've kind of evolved and we're just slightly above animals and marriage is something that was just created in the Byzantine era and it's just a false construct put on humanity and sexuality is just like adult play. It has no higher level. It has no shaping of our soul. Maybe we don't even have a soul, so what's the point anyway? It's just meant to go out and be enjoyed. That will greatly influence how you handle your sexuality, how you participate in it, how you don't participate in it. That story will shape you greatly. And so the stories that we are surrounded by shape us. Secondly, the habits we engage in. Ooh, and I've got to fly. Um, I got enough time for that. The habits you engage in, let's go with, uh, uh, I was going to talk about my children because, man, my whole life right now is just trying to shape habits and shape uh, things in them. But let's talk about you. Let's talk about your your phone. A study was done in 2013. Uh, The typical cell phone uh, user touches their phone 2,617 times every day. That's the typical user of the phone, by the way. 
That means, and that includes my grandmother, who for the first few years of having a phone just stared at it and just like randomly poked at the screen trying to get it to do something. And so I'm sure she brought down the average. I'm sure that you actually bring up the average. The study found that extreme cell phone users mean that top 10% touch their phones 5,400 times a day. That is shaping you. Habits that you have, the world that you're surrounded by shapes you. The things that you do on a daily basis get into your limbic system and actually shape the way that you are forming yourself into humanity. And so you're shaped by the habits. You're shaped by the people around you. We're communal beings. It's why when they've done things like uh, had somebody enter into an elevator where everybody else was standing backwards in the elevator, they watch them and one by one people will look around and eventually they will just stand backwards in the elevator because we are shaped by the people that we're around. And so you are shaped by your friends. What you wear, how you talk, what you think about is shaped by the people that you surround yourself in. It's why someday you will say something and you say, I finally became my father because you were shaped by the people that raised you and that you were surrounded by or your mother or whoever. It's a mix. And so you're shaped by the people around you. You're shaped by your environment. I grew up in small town Nebraska, and I hated country music, and I fought it for years. And then junior year of high school, all of a sudden, the radio came on. is Brad Paisley, the fishing song. And I said, dang it, I like this. And from that point on, I started finding myself, I was just a natural byproduct of country, like an area that was surrounded by country music that told these stories, and I was shaped into someone that actually liked those things. And similarly in America, you're shaped by, we talk about consumerism all the time. I mean, we are a country after World War II. World War II brought us out of the Great Depression, and it did it by having all these factories where people had jobs to create all these things that were able to be weapons or things that were, you know, planes and things that were able to uh, help us defeat the uh, uh, Axis powers in World War II. Problem is, after World War II ended, all those factories were still going, and they didn't want to just lay off all those workers and go back to the Great Depression. So they said, okay, we're going to keep all these factories open and we're just going to start having them all create different products. But they said the problem is, is you, you can't just create products. Like People have to buy products. And so modern advertising was born in a sense of, hey, if we can get people to want a lot of products and buy a lot of products so that we can make a lot of products so that we can keep these people employed and stay out of the Great Depression, we will be better off. And it's true. I mean, it's good for the economy, but it's also created in us a sense of just I want and I am defined by the things I consume or don't consume. You're confined, or you are shaped by your environment. So you're shaped by stories you believe, uh, the habits you engage in, the people around you, your environment, and then the experiences that you have. The things that happen to you, things that don't happen to you, the opportunities you have, the opportunities you don't have. I was doing some counseling recently, and I was talking with a counselor about just anxiety I was experiencing. And he just, like, said, like, he started asking me all these questions about my childhood. And, like, you know, I was just like, man, this is just, like, the therapeutic stuff of, like, go back to your childhood and describe your relationship to your mother and your father and all those things. And eventually he said, here's why I'm doing this. Because I'm seeing all these patterns of anxiousness in your life. And he said, that doesn't come from nowhere. That comes from somewhere. And so the goal is identifying where does that come from? What experiences have shaped you that have formed the stories in you that have just created you as someone who needs to be anxious about things at all times? It says it didn't come from anywhere and it doesn't go away for no reason. It comes by identifying and reshaping the experiences you've had, the stories you believe. And so what do we do to counter these stories? 
here are the counterways or the uh, ways that we counter each of those things. So instead of letting the stories we define us, I mean, the stories will define us, we shape those stories by teaching in Scripture. The whole world is telling compelling stories. This is what it is to be human. This is what you are to believe. And they all sound compelling. Here's what's scary. Think about things that your grandparents or great-grandparents believed. And there's tons of things you can just say, like, they were crazy backwards about all these ways that they thought about, I don't know, race or identity or all these things. Here's what's scary. Think about what your grandchildren or great-grandchildren will say about us. We'll say about the crazy things that we believed. Because the fact is, is that we are regularly trying to reform ourselves to historic truths that are found in Scripture. It's like a totem. In the movie Inception, where they go into the dream world. If you haven't seen it, this is going to make no sense to you at all. But either way, they go into the dream world, and they all, they, there's a point where like, they don't know if they're in the dream world or not. And so they all have to have totems, and the main character has a top where he spins. And if it spins forever, it means he's in the dream world. It means that he's not in reality. And if it falls down like a normal top eventually, that means that he's in reality. And the scriptures are like a totem to our souls. Regularly coming back to saying, hey, what is reality? And so we participate in teaching. We participate in being formed by having our teachings formed um, or having our stories formed by scripture, by hearing teaching on Sundays, by, by forming ourselves by the thoughts of God. But then we also shape habits through spiritual formation. Um, you see all these things that we're called into be self-control, uh, you know, virtue. Uh, the fact is, this is not about trying harder. Because you might be someone who's like, oh, I just can't stop worrying. Well, maybe you're someone who can't stop worrying yet. It's, someone about, it's not about trying harder, it's about training harder. Oh, I can't get out of lust. I can't get out of sexual addiction. No, you can't do it yet. I can't be someone who forgives. You can't forgive I mean, I think about, like, Steph Curry, who, like, you know, has perfected, like, the three-point shot in basketball. And what do they talk about, like, what's famous, or what's Steph Curry famous for? That if you arrive, like, an hour before the game, every single game, he comes out and performs the same drills of taking, like, crazy half-court shots between his legs and over his head because he knows that if eventually he does that enough times over and over that when he gets into a real situation, he will have shaped himself into someone who can hit that shot. It's not about trying harder. It's about training over time and shaping yourselves through teaching, through habits that get into your limbic system over 10, 20, 30, 40 years and shape you. Instead of just relationships, it's community. That's why we stress community here. You need to be known. You need to be in a community where you are known and you know others and you are loved and loved by others in a community of people who are going after the things of Jesus. Because you need people who, when you fall down, when you falter, are pulling you along with you. Instead of place or environment, it's the Holy Spirit. We talk about grace all the time as forgiveness of sin. In the New Testament, it does refer to grace as forgiveness of sin. It also refers to the grace given by the Holy Spirit to actually do these things. That's where I said maybe in, instead of regularly being like, man, Every time somebody fails or confesses, we just say quickly like, to assuage their souls and ours, hey, nobody's perfect. Maybe instead we say, hey, I'm trusting that the grace of the Holy Spirit is going to continue to move and do all the things that God said he could do in you. I'm trusting that God can do in you and shape you into someone who becomes shaped into the image of Jesus. And so I got to cut a couple things, but let me end here. 
if these are the ways that we're formed, we're formed through our stories, through our habits, through our relationship, through our environment. And similarly, we can have a counter-formation. Over time, we inform our stories through realigning ourselves to the truths of God. We form our habits in ones that are practicing us to look more like Jesus, that over time, I, I talked to a pastor one time who just practiced um, regularly. He, he said he just practiced silence before God. And he said as he did every day, he would just sit there and he would just, in order to kind of center himself and be present to God, he would take his hands and he'd rub them over his dining room table. He said over the years, there have been grooves formed in his table just by him regularly forming over that. And what if that is a picture of your soul? That every day it's being formed or deformed. And so we're forming it regularly. We're using community and we're trusting in the Holy Spirit. And so a practice that I put before you today to, uh, for those of who, us who are believers, who are Christians, who are formed into the image of Jesus, is just coming forward in communion, taking the bread and the cup. The bread and the cup is a historic practice that Jesus said, hey, do this regularly in remembrance of the fact that I have saved you from your sin. I have freed you. That does not just free you from the guilt, though it does, but it frees you from its power. And it releases you to live the way that you're meant to live. And so come and remember this truth and take it into you. And remember that you are shaping yourself into someone who in their inner being can be formed into the image of Jesus. And so a moment here, we'll have bread and cup around the room. There'll be stations around where you can come, take the bread, tear it off, dip it in the cup, remembering that you have been freed from the power of sin through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And then, if you're not a Christian, not a believer, we're glad you're here, don't feel the necessity to come and take this meal. This is what this is. We'd love to talk to you about what it is to have faith. We'd love to let you to wrestle here. We want this to be a safe place for you to just come and, and have your doubts and have your questions. We'd love you to be a part of the family, but, but just come and let's have this part of the meal because this is what that is. There's no weirdness for being in, remaining in your seat. Let me pray for us right now. Father God, Lord, again, I, as we continue to hold on to these weighty truths of that you have called us to be formed in your image, which... We just feel so ill-prepared for. Lord, I pray that you would shape us into a community that is moving us in the direction over time through experiences to be shaped into Jesus, to be having Jesus be in our inner being through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we would be ones where life, where what in the book of John, the this streams of living water exploding out of us actually are free to come out of us or it seems really foreign to us. Because we live in a world where we just think, man, if I can just, like God will just do it in me. And the truth is, is that you've called us to participate. You've called us to have a part in, along with your spirit, to shape ourselves into your image. And Lord, make us a church body that is being formed, again, for our life, so that we might have life and have it to the full, and we might bring life to the I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.